Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. It's been a while since I've interacted with provisionism, especially our friend Leighton Flowers. Um, I've had a lot of other things that I've been um, having to teach on and uh, focus on, but um, recently I was listening to a YouTube clip where Leighton was interacting with Dr. James White on the issue of, does God show favoritism? Does God, is he God partial in his judgment? And basically in this YouTube clip, Leighton said that Dr. White did not answer the question especially related to the context of Jacob and Esau in Romans chapter 9. So what I want to do is I want to interact with Leighton Flowers' question and a few of his statements, and I want to give the Reformed answer to his question. Now, I think Dr. White did answer the question, but I'm going to answer it basically in, in the way that I think that would be helpful to you as podcast listeners to answer this objection because this is a common objection that Arminians and non-Calvinists give towards our position, especially related to unconditional election. And so let's just remind ourselves, what is unconditional election? Unconditional election is the idea or the truth that before the foundation of the world, God chose specific individuals For salvation, there were no conditions that those sinners had to meet. God did not look down the corridors of time and foresee them meeting the conditions of repentance and faith or obedience or spiritual uh, sensitivity or any type of conditions. It was simply God's sovereign choice according to his good pleasure to choose some out of the mass of humanity that's fallen in Adam that deserves hell And the rest he passed over and left in their sins to face the just consequences of their rebellion. Unconditional election. And one of the key passages of scripture that teaches this is Romans chapter 9. Now obviously the provisionist understanding of Romans chapter 9 is the corporate view of election. I've done other podcasts interacting with that probably five or six years ago when we first started interacting with Leighton Flowers and provisionism. But let's just read Romans chapter 9, 10 through 13, because this is the passage of scripture that Leighton Flowers is addressing in this YouTube clip in his interaction with Dr. James White. Romans 9, 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, this passage of scripture brings up a question. Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? And I understand this to mean for salvation, not corporate election where God chose Jacob to be the vessel or the carrier of the gospel or to bring forth the lineage of Christ and then he over, uh, or passed over or hated Esau, i.e. the Edomites. I think this is talking about individual election to salvation. So the question is, why did God hate Esau and love Jacob 
before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad? Well, the text tells us a few things. Number one, we know that the election or the choice took place before they were born. Number two, we also know that this election was unconditional. It's very important. It's unconditional. It was not based on future behavior of Jacob and Esau, either positive or negative, those responses to God. It was before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, positive or negative toward God. And number three, the election was not based on works. Again, meeting some future condition to merit being chosen. Jacob did something good, and therefore God chose him based upon works that he did. Esau did things that were evil, therefore God chose not to elect him. It's not based on works. And then the election was based on God's purpose and calling. It says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Nowhere in this text do we see any conditions these men had to meet in order for God to choose either one of them. That's unconditional election. And also, nowhere in the text do we see any explicit reason that God chose Jacob over Esau. The only reason given in the text is that it was according to God's good purpose. And that's what the non-Calvinists don't like. They don't like God to be sovereignly choosing according to his good purpose. They want to have God tell the reason. They want to have some type of reason explicitly explained as to why God chose one over the other. And, and the Arminian view does give that reason. The Arminian view is that God foresaw faith. God, it's conditional election. God foresaw, God looked down the quarters of time. God saw conditions being met in time when a sinner used their libertarian free will to trust Christ or they used their libertarian free will to reject Christ. God at least saw those conditions being met and then he elected based upon those conditions. Provisionism, on the other hand, is not Arminian foresight. It's more of a corporate view of election. So let's listen to Leighton Flowers pose the question. Let's just let, let's listen to him ask the question, and then in this podcast, we're going to answer it. So in Leighton Flowers' own words, here is his question. Is how is it not showing partiality for God to choose one twin before the foundation of the world to condemn and choose to uh, effectually bring the other one to salvation when both of them haven't done anything good or bad yet. In fact, the things that they are kind of going to do good or bad in the future are things that God himself brings to pass through a sovereign decree. So you, you've got to ask yourself the question, how is that not partiality? How is that even considered just, fair, right, good in any meaningful sense of those terms? And, and how are we going to engage with that? So there's the question in relation to particularly Romans chapter 9 that we just read. Does unconditional election present God to be showing favoritism or partiality or being a respecter of persons? Does this view of unconditional election conflict with other passages that teach that God does not show partiality? That is the question posed. And Leighton said that James White did not answer it. He said James White gave a lot of 
ad hominem arguments against Leighton and did a lot of um, pleading of the question, question begging, and, and did not really give an answer. That's between James White and Leighton Flowers to flush out. In this podcast, I'm going to answer Leighton Flowers. Now, let's listen to another set of argumentation that Leighton gives where I think he throws a little bit of shade on our view and uses some terminology that I know he knows we don't believe, but why he would use this terminology to muddy the waters, I'm not sure. So let's listen to these other statements by Leighton Flowers. This is more him fleshing out the reason why he asked the question in the first place. So let's, let's hear him in his own words um, give some explanations here. Humanity not being partial in judgment, which, of course, if we want to be like God, we should follow his rules and follow his example. And so he's going to not he's not a hypocrite. He's not going to tell us not to be partial in judgment. And then he himself, you know, be partial in judgment. And we know that God's not partial in judgment because the Bible tells us that he does not show favoritism. He does not show partiality. Like Peter said in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, when he began to speak, saying, now I realize, see, he's now understanding after he had the dream with the white sheet let, let down and he goes to Cornelius, they come to know the Lord. And he says, now I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So what it, who, are, who are the ones who fear him and do what's right? Well, those who accept his truth. Um, Jesus came to his own, John chapter 1, and his own received him not. But to those who do receive him, he gives the right to become a child of God. And that is from every nation. God does not show partiality based upon your nationality. Now, why would the, the scriptures go to so much trouble showing us that God doesn't show partiality based upon their nationality only to secretly teach us through some secretive way, through some decreative way, I guess, God actually shows partiality through some secret reason that we don't know. What would be the point in that? Like you find out when you get to heaven, oh, he doesn't show partiality based upon your gender. He doesn't show partiality based upon your nationality. He doesn't show partiality based upon your social status. He doesn't show partiality based upon your physical appearances. He doesn't show partiality based upon how moral you end up living your life. He doesn't show partiality based upon whether you put faith in Christ like he says that you are to do in order to be saved. He doesn't show partiality on any of those things. But he does flip a coin, and he shows partiality based upon how the coin lands. Now, I know God's not up there flipping coins, but what I'm trying to say is there's some mysterious reason that God shows favor to one person and not another, according to the Calvinistic worldview, that it's with, hidden within the secret counsels of his will why he shows partiality to one person and not another. Now, it's not based upon anything having to do with the individual, um, all those things I just listed, but it has to do with something in his will that we just don't know about. But if it's the flipping of a coin, if it's some divine lottery, whatever it is, we don't know. It's still partiality, brothers and sisters. And why would it go to so much trouble to show that he doesn't show partiality based upon all these things, but he does show partiality based upon some mystery that he never reveals? What, what would be the point in even bringing that up? know that Leighton does not believe that God flips a coin, even in his view. I hope, I hope he doesn't believe that. I don't think he does. I know he doesn't believe it's a divine lottery, but I'm not sure why he says that. I, I know he doesn't believe that, and, and I know he knows we don't believe that. So sometimes those type of statements kind of murky the water. He, let, let me just summarize some things related to these questions that Leighton's posing and his statements. His view doesn't account for two truths 
that we as Reformed theologians believe the Bible teaches. Now, what are these two truths that we think the Bible teaches that Leighton disagrees with? Number one, we believe that God has a sovereign decree whereby he determines whatsoever comes to pass. That's in the Westminster Confession. That's in our Second London Baptist Confession. We believe the Bible teaches that God has a sovereign decree. Leighton does not like the idea of God having a sovereign, secret, mysterious, sovereign decree that God made before the foundation of the world. So he does not affirm what we believe about a sovereign decree. And then number two, his view does not understand all people as fallen in Adam and deserving of hell. Now his objection is that God merely allowed or permitted the fall to happen. And it could have happened otherwise. Whereas we understand that the fall was ordained by God to happen exactly as it did happen. So here's the two questions that you've got to wrestle with that Leighton denies that our view affirms. Does God have a sovereign decree whereby he ordains all things that come to pass? And number two, are all people fallen in Adam and deserving of hell and condemnation because of their sin? Let's ask it a different way. Is God obligated, key word, to show mercy and grace to all people in the same way? Does unconditional election of a certain number of people conflict with other passages that teach that God does not show favoritism? Now, here's the bottom line you need to know about provisionism. Now, I've tried to rightly represent their view. I hope I do. But here are some key tenets of provisionism that you need to understand if we're going to interact with this view. It's not Arminianism. I've argued that many times. It is its own animal. So let me just give you some bottom line tenets of provisionism that will help you understand how we're going to move forward in this podcast. Provisionism denies, like I said before, God's sovereign decree before creation. Number two, Provisionism struggles with the mystery that God does not have to reveal the reasons why he does what he does. Oftentimes you will hear Leighton use terms like it's an arbitrary choice. It's a random choice. We don't believe God does anything arbitrarily or randomly. He does things according to his purpose. He just does not have to tell us as finite creatures what that purpose is. God can sovereignly keep those things to himself. He's not obligated to reveal those things to us. Number three, provisionism denies that the fall of Adam renders all people morally and spiritually unable to repent and believe. Again, they deny total inability. They don't think the fall was ordained by God. They think that Adam could have chosen otherwise, and they deny that the fall renders people spiritually and morally unable to repent and believe, which leads to the whole issue of the nature of grace. Provisionism also denies that God has to do a supernatural, internal, what they would often call mystical, work of effectual calling to overcome spiritual deadness. If you deny total inability and spiritual deadness, then why do you need a sovereign, effectual regeneration by the Spirit? 
So here's the bottom line of what provisionism affirms. And if you get this, you will understand their view. Here's the key tenet, or one of their key tenets. Provisionism affirms that the gospel appeal itself is sufficient to enable a positive response. When sinners hear the gospel, they can use the libertarian free will they've been given to trust in Jesus. There's nothing spiritually or morally from birth that renders them unable to repent and believe. The inability was they had not heard the gospel before. Once they hear the gospel, they have everything they need to make the positive choice to trust in Christ. So if you hold to a system that denies a sovereign decree, that denies unconditional election, that denies total inability, that denies effectual calling, and and has a high view of human libertarian free will, then you're naturally going to come to the conclusions that Leighton does. Those affirmations and denials will color or bias your understanding of these scriptures. Now, Again, he argues that James White never answers this question, only attacked him personally, was begging the question, was avoiding an answer. So in this podcast, I'm going to answer the question from the Reformed viewpoint. How does Reformed theology answer his question? Does not unconditional election make God a respecter of persons, showing partiality and judgment, showing favoritism? So let me give the answer right from the start here. We answer... That unconditional election does represent God as showing partiality. Yes, but, very important, we also say that this does not present God as unjustly showing partiality. The key word being unjust. The partiality that God shows is unconditional election by its very definition. Unconditional election does choose some and leave others. But that choosing, that predestination, that election is not unjust. It's not an unjust partiality. It's based on grace, not justice. Now, what does the Bible mean when it speaks of God not being a respecter of persons or showing partiality. Because there are scriptures that teach this. Now, what does it mean? Is it talking about the issue of election, or is it talking about something else? Here's what I think the Bible means when it talks about God not being a respecter of person. It means that God does not choose one sinner and reject another because of anything outwardly related to that person or by an action or by something that they are inherently born with. For example, it's not because of race. It's not because of ethnicity. It's not because of nationality. It's not because of wealth or social status or gender. It's not like God is a respecter of persons in that he only chooses Jews and not Gentiles. He only chooses poor people but not rich people he only chooses females he doesn't choose males things like that that's what it means when god's not a respecter of a person he shows no partiality related to race ethnicity nationality gender so let's look at a couple of these scriptures that actually explicitly teach this so for example when peter 
goes and presents the gospel to Cornelius, who's a Gentile. Obviously, you know the whole history. Jews did not get along with Gentiles. They viewed them as dogs, uh, the, the pejorative term. They viewed them as pagan outsiders. They did not want to go share the gospel with them. And then you had the sheet that came down with all the animals And God basically revealed to Peter, you need to go present the gospel to Cornelius. He's a Gentile. And obviously, Cornelius and his household get saved. And so in Acts 10, 34 through 35, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God does not show partiality in the sense that he only chooses Jews to be saved. Gentiles are also included in God's plan of salvation. But that does not mean that all Jews are going to be saved and all Gentiles are going to be saved. It does not conflict with God's sovereign decree to choose some and pass by others. Okay, let's look at Paul's words in Romans chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Now, you need to understand Paul's argumentation going into chapter 2. In chapter 1, Paul has, from verse 18 to the end of the chapter of chapter 1, Paul's argument is basically related to Gentiles, to pagan Gentiles. They suppress the truth. They are under condemnation because they have sinned and rebelled against God. Gentiles. And the Jews are sitting there licking their chops because Paul is condemning the Gentiles. And then in chapter 2, he turns the barrel of the gun towards the Jews and says, listen, if you think the Gentiles are guilty, actually, you're more guilty because you've been revealed. God has revealed to you his law. You have the oracles of God. You've got the history. You've got the Ten Commandments. You've got uh, the, the, the privileges of being God's chosen people, and yet you have rejected God's law what the pagans have written on their hearts and conscience you have written on tablets from Moses and so you're actually held to a higher standard and your condemnation will be greater and so Paul is basically making this argument that both Jew and Gentile are accountable and guilty before God Romans 2 8 through 11 but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth But obey righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Again, this is in the context of Jews and Greeks. This is in the issue of judgment. The Jews aren't any better and they're not going to get off the hook because they're Jews That's really the argument Paul's making there. He's basically saying, Jews, listen, you think you're getting off the hook. You think there's nothing wrong. You're looking at the Gentiles with contempt because you you call them pagans. They're, They're flagrantly disobeying God's word. But Paul's saying, listen, it doesn't really matter. Jew or Gentile, God shows no partiality. All of you are fallen. All of you are suppressing the truth. You're going to be judged according to your sin, both Jew and Gentile. God shows no partiality in how he's going to judge you. So again, it's based on ethnicity there, not national privilege. National privilege of Jews does not get them off the hook for disobeying God's law. There's going to be judgment for any sinner, Jew or Gentile, that breaks God's law and dies in their sin. Okay, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is addressing masters and slaves. In in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Masters, do the same to them, those that work under you, slaves back then, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master, talking about the Lord, and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality 
with him. Okay, again, this is talking about social status. Masters and slaves, employer, employees. Basically saying, hey, listen, masters, don't think you're any better than slaves just because you have that position. You're all equal under the, um, the, the purview of God because God is the master in heaven. He is Lord over all. So this is partiality related to social status, related to economic status, employer-employee relations, master-slave. Basically, Paul's saying, listen, masters, don't, don't, sh- don't think you're going to get partial treatment because you're better. And also, in how you handle your relationship with those under you, don't show partiality because God does not show partiality when it comes to this distinguishing between master and slave. Okay, James 2, 1 through 9. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Again, this is showing partiality to social status issues. You're giving preferential treatment to those who are rich and you're overlooking the poor. You're not to do that. Related to ethnicity, Jews don't have any privilege over Gentiles. The rich don't have any preference over the poor. Basically, when it comes to partiality, it's these outward things or these inherent things related to ethnicity or social status. And then 1 Peter 1.17, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, here's the problem that the provisionist has. You've got these verses that say God does not show partiality. Therefore, unconditional election means God shows partiality, and that's a contradiction. Why would God command us not to show partiality when, in fact, he does show partiality when it comes to choosing some and not others? And again, our answer is, yes, God shows partiality, but it's not an unjust partiality. It's based on mercy, not on justice. So when the scripture says God shows no partiality or God's not a respecter of persons, it cannot mean that God treats all people the same. But it but it means that the reason for his choosing one person and passing over another is not that one is a Jew and deserves to be chosen and the other is a Gentile and does not deserve to be chosen or that one is rich and deserves to be chosen and the other is poor and therefore does not deserve to be chosen or one is a, a woman and deserves to be chosen and, and one is a man, etc. That's not, that's not what we're saying here. So we're saying there's no conflict between God showing partiality in understanding male, female, Jew, Gentile, social status. There's no conflict with that in relation to unconditional election. Now let's just talk about history for a moment. 
we know from biblical history that God in his providence has not given all people everywhere the same gospel privileges. You just know from your Bible and from world history that God has not treated all people equally when it comes to gospel privileges. For example, God chose Abraham alone. There were a lot of pagan moon worshipers in Ur of the Chaldeans living in pagan darkness, and God only chose Abraham. It wasn't like Abraham was looking for God. It wasn't like Abraham was searching for God. In Genesis chapter 12, God shows up sovereignly and chooses one man. And God's not obligated to choose Abraham. God didn't choose three families or four families. He chose Abraham and left the rest in darkness. Some people are born in Christian families in a rich nation. I often wonder, why was I born... I was born in 1971 in Kansas City, Missouri, to a Christian family. Why did that happen to me? Versus I go to uh, mission trips to South Asia, and we go into remote villages up in the mountains where people are steeped in really animism, the worship of ancestors, or Hinduism. Why did I have the gospel privilege of being born in the 20th century in America with gospel privileges, and yet somebody across the world is born in pagan darkness with no gospel privileges? Why is that? Is God just merely allowing that to happen? We know from Acts chapter 17, verse 26, God has sovereignly chosen where everyone lives. Acts 17, 26, when Paul's at Mars Hill and he's, he's preaching to the, the philosophers there about the unknown God, listen to what he says. He said, and he made, this is God, he made from one man, talking about Adam, every nation and mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God has sovereignly chosen where we're born, where we live, so if we believe that God is sovereign and providentially governs the world, then we must believe that these inequalities of gospel access are not by chance, they're not by accident, but by God's sovereign decree. Now, let me just say, let, let's, let me make a concession here, although I don't believe this, but let's just say you believe that God did not sovereignly ordain where people live, but he merely allowed people to live where they live. God allowed it. He didn't ordain it you still have to answer the question. There are millions of people living in unreached areas right now that God could send the gospel to or God could supernaturally intervene to overcome that dire condition, but he chooses not to. And you have to answer that question. Well, then why does God not? And then you're back to whether God ordains it or whether God allows it. He, there are people living in darkness that God is choosing to leave there. Now, obviously, we need missionaries to go to those unreached people, but God could very easily, in his sovereignty, overcome that dire darkness and unreachedness if he wanted to. But he is allowing or permitting or ordaining inequalities right now in the world between reached nations and unreached nations. Have you ever thought about how God even shows partiality among believers? Think about the issue of spiritual gifts. Did you choose your spiritual gift if you're a believer? No. Do you determine how many you get 
or how many another person gets. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. All these, talking about spiritual gifts, are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The Holy Spirit apportions spiritual gifts sovereignly as he wills. And so why do some Christians get more gifts for ministry than others? Is there something within one Christian that moved God to give that person more gifting? Is there something inherently good about one Christian over another Christian? Or does God sovereignly make discriminations? God sovereignly make choices? God may sovereignly, in our limited view, make inequalities in giftings, even among Christians. So even then, God is showing partiality by giving some Christians more gifting than others. So here's the fundamental issue. The non-Calvinist, the provisionist, has a false premise or a presumption that God is obligated to show grace to all people equally. See, the idea of partiality or favoritism that people object to in unconditional election is actually impossible when we think about the nature of saving grace. Partiality can only exist in the sphere of justice where people have certain claims and rights. Remember, our answer to the question is yes, God does show partiality in unconditional election, but it's not an unjust partiality. It's not unjust. It's not like somebody deserves something and God's withholding it or God's making a distinction based upon something that they did or didn't do. It's unconditional. Think about the earthly ministry of Jesus for a moment. Did Jesus heal every single person? No, there are times when he turned people away. There are times in the Gospels you read where he left villages earlier than what the people wanted him. They didn't want him to leave. And, and he said, we must go to another village. He cut the ministry short because he was on God's timetable. Think about Lazarus, his friend that died. He raised Lazarus from the grave. Did Jesus raise anybody else who died? You could say, well, you know, Jesus is showing favoritism to his friends because Lazarus and Martha and Mary were his good friends, and so Jesus is showing partiality. He's showing favoritism to these friends that he loved, and he's not going and healing Joe Blow's brother who died, who had no connection. So, so Jesus is obviously showing favoritism because he only chose to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, according to human reason, we might object, and we might say from human reason, well, that's being unfair. That's being partial. Jesus is being a respecter of person because Jesus must, he's obligated to raise everyone or to heal everyone. He must raise all the dead people. Jesus can't have the sovereign right to heal whoever he wants or to raise whoever he wants. And the fact that he chose to raise Lazarus means that Jesus is a respecter of persons. He showed favoritism to that family and then he just left everybody else in the dust. You see, the provisionist view argues that Jesus, even in his earthly ministry, cannot make distinctions, cannot make discriminations in his ministry practices. They would say at least he would have to give everyone a chance to have their relatives healed or raised from the dead. So in the calling of Abraham, in the giving of spiritual gifts, in determining where people are born, 
in the world and what time, and even Jesus' earthly ministry, you've got example after example where God makes discriminations. God does show partiality. But again, it's not unjust partiality. It's not something that God is withholding that people somehow deserve and it's being unjust. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty seven, all things have been handed over to be my, my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Everybody's born in spiritual darkness. Everybody's born blinded. Everybody's born spiritually dead. And Jesus has the sovereign right to reveal the Father to whomever he wants to reveal. He's not obligated to reveal him to everybody. Now think about the parable of the vineyards in Matthew chapter 20. You remember the parable. Uh, uh, these vineyard workers are um, uh, out there in the fields, and the vineyard, the, the, the owner of the vineyard goes out and hires somebody at 6 o'clock and basically says, I'll pay you such and such wage. Goes at 9 o'clock same wage goes at 12 o'clock same wage goes like in the afternoon like three o'clock i'm kind of paraphrasing same wage and then everybody comes up and he pays those that came last first remember the about six o'clock he calls everybody in and he pays those that only worked a couple hours a day's wage and then when it comes down to the guys that he hired in early in the morning what did they think they thought they were going to be paid a whole lot more because they worked all day long and remember they had agreed to pay today's, a day's wage. And so at the end of the parable in Matthew chapter 20, verses 13 and 15, he replied to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, what's the point of the parable? God has the sovereign right to show mercy however he wants to show mercy. Those that were hired first had no right to demand more from the master. It wasn't as if God was showing impartiality unjustly. There was an agreement that they would work in the, in the, in the parable. They, they all agreed to work for the same wage. And so the point is, is that God has the sovereign right to be generous. Again, when we're talking about partiality, we're not talking about the area of justice and what people deserve or what people can claim or what people can merit or what people are obligated to get. We're talking about in the area of mercy. And again, Romans 9. If, if you keep on going, we talked about Jacob and Esau earlier. Romans 9, 15 through 18. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God has the right to show mercy. See, here's the point. Every single person deserves justice. And God is not being impartial if he chooses to give mercy to some and withhold it from others. That's not being unjustly impartial. That's God showing mercy to those that deserve wrath. Grace and mercy, by their very nature, must be sovereign. It's not something, grace is not something God is obligated to give. 
If you can demand grace or you're obligated to receive it or you can earn it or you can merit it or something that God must do, then by its very definition, it ceases to be grace. Now, let's just think of two, two analogies, two scenarios, okay? Let's say 10 men owed a certain creditor $1,000. And for some reason, the man, the creditor, and he chooses not to reveal these reasons for reasons known to himself, he chooses to forgive the debt of only seven of these men. Three men still have to pay the debt, but seven don't. Do the three that had to still pay have any right to complain? No, it's kind of like the parable of the vineyard. All of them owe $1,000. And for the creditor to say, I'm going to choose seven to pay and three I'm going to leave, he's not been unjustly partial. He's shown mercy and forgiveness to seven and left the other three to face the consequences of their debt. All right, let's think about another scenario. Let's say three criminals committed a heinous crime. Three criminals are on death row, deserving of death. And the governor of the state chooses for his own reasons to pardon only two of those criminals. So does the one who does not get pardoned and has to face the death penalty, does he have any right to complain of injustice? No. Again, we're dealing with partiality in the area of mercy. All three of these criminals deserve death. For three or two to get mercy and one to get the death penalty is not impartiality unjustly given. It is mercy given. And the one who gives the mercy does not have to explain why he's doing it. He can simply do it because he wants to do it and leave those reasons to himself. The reason can't be that these people deserved it, okay? So it can't be that the creditors who owed the $1,000 deserve to be forgiven because they owed a debt. It can't be that the criminals deserve to be freed because they committed a crime. Now, I know what the provisionist counter-argument will be at this point. I, I can hear Leighton Flowers just ready to counteract with this. They would say something like this, yes. But how can these people be held accountable for sins they committed that God foreordained them to commit? If God has a sovereign decree and ordains everything that comes to pass, then they had no choice in the matter. They're just carrying out what God had ordained. And what a better excuse can someone have on the day of judgment to say, well, God made me this way or God ordained for this to happen. I'm not accountable. I'm not responsible because of God's sovereign decree. If all things come to pass by God's decree, then these men had no choice. They're only doing what the proverbial cosmic script writer was written for them to do, and they could not do otherwise. This is the same argument that Paul brings up in Romans 9. You know, why does God still find fault, and who are you, old man, to talk back to God? Let me just answer this briefly. God ordained the fall. God ordained original sin. God ordained total inability. God ordained that sinful men would act according to their nature. God did not make these men do what they did directly. God can sovereignly decree that sinners do something in the future without He Himself being the direct cause of them doing it. And you say, well, how can that be? We don't have time to go into this, but let me just explain Genesis 50, 20. 
You can go back a few weeks ago. I did a teaching on Genesis, and I explained compatibilism. But Genesis 50:20, Joseph's confronting his brothers there at the end of the life after Jacob had died, and they're freaked out that they think Joseph's going to mete out punishment on them for what they did many years ago by putting him in the pit and selling him into slavery, leaving him for dead. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about many people should be kept alive as they are today. Okay, two, two different things going on here, but the same verb. Brothers, you did evil. You are responsible for your evil. You purposely acted in the jealousy of your own heart to sell me into slavery. Yet at the same time, it was God's sovereign plan for you to do that. God did not hold a gun to your head and make you do that. You did that freely out of your nature. But what you did freely out of your nature, you were doing exactly what God ordained to happen. God was not the direct cause. You were the direct cause. You were doing what you wanted to do. You were doing at the same time what God wanted to have happen. And at the end of the day, you are responsible for doing what God ordained for you to do. And it was his sovereign decree. So let's think about this question of unconditional election and God's favoritism. Do we understand unconditional election? Remember, we, we spoke earlier about that passage in Romans chapter 9 of Jacob and Esau. There were no conditions that Esau or Jacob had to meet in order for God to choose one or the other. And we deny the Arminian foresight view because that's not taught in the text either that God foresaw faith in Jacob and then chose based upon what he saw in Jacob and then he foresaw rebellion in Esau and therefore passed over Esau. In fact, whether you hold to the foreseen faith, conditional election Arminian view, or you hold to the provisionist corporate election view, both systems are based on conditional election. A sinner uses libertarian free will to repent and believe. And once they meet that condition of faith, God either in Arminianism foresees that condition being met and then ratifies the sinner's decision by choosing them, or in the corporate view of election, when a sinner believes in Jesus, they are then placed in Christ. They were not individually chosen before the foundation of the world, but God chose the plan, God chose the the, the, the mechanism to be in Christ, the group that would one day make up individuals who got into that plan by using their free will. In addition, think about this. If God chooses based on sinners meeting some kind of condition, whether that's repentance, whether that's faith, whether that's choosing, whatever, if God chooses based upon conditions being met, then that would make God a respecter of persons and show favoritism or partiality based upon something they did or did not do. It actually would be the, 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 the conditional foresight election view or the corporate election view actually makes God a respecter of persons showing favoritism because his choice of these sinners would be on their ability to make the right choice for them to be spiritually sensitive when the gospel is presented to repent and believe when others did not. 
And so if God based his choice on who will have faith and who will meet these conditions, then this would in fact make God a respecter of persons because these persons are meeting God's criteria in order to be chosen. They would have done something good. That is, trusting Jesus. They would have met those conditions of election instead of doing something bad. That is, rejecting Jesus or remaining in their sins to be passed over by God. So in this view of conditional election, foreseen faith, Arminian view, or corporate view of election, God's love or predestination of people is not unconditional. But it's only given to those who meet the right conditions to choose Jesus. So God's love is conditioned, or God's choice is conditioned or based on the right response to the gospel when it's presented. If the gospel appeal is presented and you use your libertarian free will to choose, then you've met the condition and God chooses you based upon that condition. On the other hand, in our view, all people are fallen in Adam. There is such a thing as original sin and original guilt. All humans are spiritually dead from birth. All humans are hostile to God. All humans are enslaved to sin. And all humans justly deserve condemnation. And all humans cannot in any way meet any condition for God to choose them. They can't repent. They can't believe. They can't be more spiritually sensitive. They can't choose positively. They are hopeless, they are helpless, and they are hell-bound in their deadness. So God chooses those who could never choose themselves, could never meet those conditions in and of themselves. And this shows God to be merciful and gracious. Because he's not asking sinners to meet conditions that they can't meet. He meets the conditions sovereignly by choosing those that cannot, in and of themselves, choose. Why God chooses some and not others? The Bible never answers explicitly with a reason other than it's according to God's good pleasure and God's sovereign will. In conditional election, the choice of God is not really his unconditional love. It's not really his sovereignty, but it's based upon the right response to those who meet the conditions using their free will. So let's answer Leighton's question again. Yes, God does show partiality or discrimination or favoritism, if you like that term, in unconditionally electing some to salvation and passing over others. The real issue is the definition or in what sense does God show partiality. He chooses unconditionally not based on merit or something earned or something that's obligated or something that is deserved. Lorraine Bettner in the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, sums up this whole issue with a great statement. He says this, quote, Hence then, to the objection that the doctrine of predestination represents God as partial, we answer, it certainly does. But we insist that it does not 
represent him as unjustly partial. So I hope you understand the answer to the question. Yes, unconditional election by its very definition shows that God makes a choice of some but not others, but that is not an unjust partiality. It's based upon mercy, where all people deserve wrath, hell, condemnation, and God chooses some and not others, not because they did anything good or bad to deserve the choosing, or they merited it, or God was obligated. He did it because he chose to show mercy to some and not others, but all deserve wrath. And for God to show mercy to some and not others is not unjust partiality. It is actually sovereign mercy and sovereign grace. And that should lead us to worship our great God who was under no obligation to save anyone or choose anyone. The fact that he chose you for salvation and brought the gospel to you and regenerated you and gave you saving faith is a cause for humility and awe and to fall on your knees because God could have very easily left you in your sin, passed you over as reprobate, and he would have done you no harm because you deserved wrath like the rest of mankind. And God was not unjust to leave you there. He would be perfectly just to do so. But the fact that he shows an unconditional election to some and not others, according to his good pleasure, is an act of mercy, not unjust partiality or favoritism. So hopefully this has answered the question from the reform point of view as to what it means for God to show partiality. Well, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for future podcasts, you can go to seancole.net. You can find my contact information there. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter. Love to interact with you. And until next time, let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus.